0: And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Well, it's been another week in the free speech world where we might have started thinking uh, we wouldn't have a lot to talk about, but as usual, uh, we have... Uh, more than enough to fill our time in this podcast. Ben, what are we What
1: are we starting with today? Well, we're still celebrating a fantastic victory in the case of Anna Thomas, who was an employee, a civil servant in the Department for Work and Pensions. And the Free Speech Union has won her a settlement for £100,000 after she was forced out of her job because she'd raised the alarm about critical race theory and gender identity ideology within the civil service being promoted within the civil service. Um, and she'd made the completely reasonable point that I think most listeners would would accept entirely, that the civil service is supposed to be neutral. There's a civil service code that governs the impartiality of civil servants and that advancing these extremely contentious ideas, which of course civil servants are welcome to hold in their, in their private and personal lives, but advancing those uh ideologies those philosophies in the workplace in the civil service it's just wholly inappropriate um so we're celebrating this victory of course it should never have happened of course going through a process like this and the internal investigation and then going to an employment tribunal and all the rest of it it's horrendously stressful it's horrendously stressful and there's no guarantee of getting a good outcome uh but in this case the the civil service has settled and and she's been given this this great settlement this six-figure sum so we're celebrating that um it's a great victory and going back to that point
0: about uh, anna thomas's mental health i saw several of the clips and in the interviews over the last week which have been which have been great to see i think she's when she started this whole process she had a three-month-old daughter and now that daughter is three years old yeah. uh, and so a new mum yeah with all of the stress that comes with being a new mum Uh, going into all of this and then of course over the over the time the protracted time period that this has happened all the way up to the hundred thousand pound settlement her child's reached the age of three and you think goodness me how do you deal with all of that stress uh if you're in a very, very kind of stable. Life is normal, but with a new child and all of that, it, it's a huge deal. It, it, um, it, it, and a, and another thing that strikes me, Ben, on that mm. is is how how short sighted, how far sighted, and and short sighted she was because she she saw this uh, and was commenting on this back at in twenty twenty, which was at the very height of the BLM protests. It was the height of um, everyone reacting to that, and 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 as we now would probably say, overreacting. Uh, certainly, from a free speech perspective, and she was so short sighted in that um and seeing, seeing f- sorry foresight she had a lot of foresight in that
1: yeah interestingly i was uh, I was working at Oxford University, for one of the colleges at this time uh in the aftermath mm. of the the murder of george floyd um and also had a very young child so i 'm about anna thomas 's age. And so I had exactly the same experience that she described and that she pushed back against of this murder taking place thousands of miles away, and then every institution in Britain collectively losing its mind over it. And this 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 performance by managers and, and directors of, of our institutions coming out and saying, oh, we're institutionally racist and uh we we've got we've got mm. to atone for that and all the rest of it and no matter what you what you do or what you think subconsciously you are a racist as well and you basically can't help it and so all of these ideas that she was pushing back against in the civil civil service i, I was on paternity leave at the time um all of this is going on and then i, I sort mm. of returned to work and it, and it was like everybody had lost their minds and so, because I've been completely out of out, out of you know not really paying much attention to politics at the time, completely in the sleepless nights of of being a new parent and all the rest of it, um, and then to return, it was like the invasion of the body snatchers. Everything looked the same, <laughs> but some, but something fundamental had changed, and it was very unnerving trying to figure out exactly what what was going on and why why this mania had had gripped people. And of, of course the footage is horribly distressing and it was awful and it shouldn't have happened and, and so on. But it, 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 terrible things happen every day. Terrible things, awful things happen every day. And it, it seemed bizarre that this this gripped every, every institution in, in Britain, the civil service and Oxford University and so on. And the corporate world as well. You know, the amount of training
0: yes. that came out of this. And it was it was like a three-card trick, though, at the time, I feel. I remember having conversations with a lot of people, particularly around the language that was being used. As you say, it's white fragility, a lot of re-racializing language, um, anti-racism, the sorts of things like, as we've spoken before, like they're like homemade cooking and apple pie. We're all against racism. We're all um, for justice. And these things are axiomatic to the way we think and, and, and operate in our society. And what was happening, of course, was that it was it was a, a Trojan horse. I'm I'm mixing my metaphors here. A three-card trick with a Trojan horse. Who, who knew that could happen? <laughs> Um, but I I feel like that all those words um, were were sneaked in, but the the concepts underlying them when you actually interrogate them, test them, kick them around a bit are the, uh, the direct opposite of course of of the Martin Luther King uh, 1960s view of of what it meant to, to, to pursue race rights, racial rights. And uh, that, that, took a long time then for people to to wake up to. As you said, it was like a a sudden spike of madness. And then slowly people's wits came back. But Anna, of course, was one of
1: these um, uh, casualties of war, really, from that spike time. Lots of her experience will resonate with a lot of people. And it's worth just describing some of what she had objected to. And so in, in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder in summer 2020, the uh, Department, Department of Work and Pensions, was pushing out material saying that the department had to be an anti-racism hub and asking white employees to assume that they were racist um, and quoting from the lengthy uh, anti-racist reading lists that were being feverishly circulated at that time. Uh, we, we've spoken before about, uh, I think we we talked about life in East Germany and behind the Iron Curtain about um, the, the profound difficulty of not being true to yourself and the harm that does to you but on the flip side of that the profound courage that is required to push back even in small ways where you feel that everybody has a preference for a certain philosophical view and so to be in the civil service or a corporation or whatever at this time and to gently push back even a little bit, against this uh, this tidal wave of this American critical race theory, gender identity theory, and, and so on. Um, it, well, it just takes a huge amount of courage. It takes a huge amount of courage. Yeah. Um, and as we've described, the impact from having done that has, has been three years of... Of this battle, and even before it got to uh, the to become a legal process, she was under investigation. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the yeah. extraordinary thing I, I thought reading this was that she had raised these concerns internally, which is a very courageous thing to to do in that climate. Um, and the the sort of the, the the left hand in the civil service didn't know what the right hand was doing, and so one part of the civil service reacted to her concerns by saying, "Oh yes, actually, you've got a point." we do need to be impartial. These are really contentious ideas. The civil service shouldn't be pushing these on, a, on civil servants. Um, and then sh- the other hand sacks her for having raised these concerns. Well, exactly. It was uh, astonishing.
0: Wasn't there an internal memo that said, yeah, we think, we think Anna's right, as you say. Um, but, it, it, but, but when we say the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, the right hand, which didn't, didn't see the problem, ended up going to the point of dismissing. Anna, this is the astonishing thing, of course, it was, yes, it was totally disjointed, but the power and the, the clunking fist was the right hand that said, no, you're in the wrong, was on the side of the identitarian politics um, yeah. in this, which, of course, you know, identitarian politics and the civil service, they just should be not in the same, the same room, uh, let alone leading to the, the, the quashing of a very promising career in the civil service. Um, there's a great article, I don't know if you've read it, Ben, Brin, our colleague Bryn Harris has written a fantastic article in The Critic, uh, which really lays this out very, very one, how one woman took on the DWP and won. And I very much recommend anyone listening to go in, and read that that article. And, and Bryn describes the Orgean the stable. So it's going to be a Herculean task to clear out some of this identitarian politics from the civil service and of course it's also not just going to be the civil service it's going to be other public sector organizations and it's going to be the private sector as well but wow i think a bit like maya for starter you know in that case being key for establishing gender critical views as being protected that this doesn't establish the same legal precedent but it's certainly um, makes a very very strong point to anyone in authority that there is there is another side to this. Um, as we say, the civil service didn't actually admit that they'd done anything wrong, so that's that's why it's very different to Mya Forstater, and that's very important to say. However, uh, when a hundred thousand pounds is being is being paid in in a settlement, then uh, I think at least it makes people think and wake up. Uh, as to how they're how they're taking on board identitarian politics or or their ilk in in their organisations, so it's a fantastic win.
1: One of the, uh, the, the, in the aftermath of this, there are a couple of things that the FSU is campaigning for, because in our view, this isn't just a a sort of one-off episode, quite clearly, and we have the data to demonstrate this. This is an endemic problem in the civil service and elsewhere. But particularly in the context of the civil service, um, we think that there needs to be um, a much broader conception of what politics is and what is politically controversial. So, for instance, um, the civil service code we've said should be amended um, to uh, trigger impartiality requirements beyond the confines of party politics. So it doesn't have to just be a Labour versus Conservative versus a Liberal Democrat um, issue. Anything that is politically contentious, like your view about the transgender issue or your approach to um, critical race theory, whether you accept it or whether you reject it, that all of these issues that are such hot-button topics should trigger the impartiality obligations that civil servants have Um, and one of the points that our colleague Bryn has has made in this article um is that for civil servants deciding what is political and what is not the test is not do i and people i follow on twitter agree with this um Mm -hmm. it, it, it has there has to be a more fundamental um Reconception of what politics is, and when, politi- when sorry, uh, when civil servants need to be um, politically impartial. Mm. And when there's been a complete failure of that in in Anna's case, clearly even the civil service agreed with her.
0: Well, that reminds me, Ben, of what we were discussing in our last podcast um, with doc- with Dr. Thomas Prosser about low liberalism. We that that, yeah. that idea that he coined, that concept that he coined talks about the limits of politics and one of the problems being that we don't or, or, or organizations or people in power don't recognize the limits of politics politics seeps out into into everything as you say it becomes this twitter reality where if i 'm agreed with on Twitter then that's uh you know it no it's no longer political because everyone on Twitter agrees with me but it but it is political it is a view and and it seems like um uh, People are now expected in the workplace to, to hold these beliefs, and politics has been allowed to, to seep out further than it ever should have. Um, so, I, I like, I like that, that. That was a nice link, I felt, back to some of what we were talking about last week. For our next topic, Ben, I thought it would be good to talk about uh, some of what underlies. Uh, we talked about Anna Thomas's case and some of these people in the workplace who are clearly. Uh, holding everyone else to account, a lot of the time they're the younger people in the office. They're the younger people, the new graduates who are are trying to change the culture in the office and bring in some of this identitarian politics. And we've talked about them coming from the graduate class and and going into into the civil service or wherever it might be. But there's a sort of undercurrent here of um, quite an authoritative youth culture, So I know that we've spoken before about wokeism and we've tried to define wokeism, but something that that I'm interested in is the role of the youth in all of that and how we've got to this point where we have such an authoritarian youth. I think we've always had youth, I go back to the 1960s, you can go back, I was thinking you can go back to the Spanish Civil War, really, when people like a young George Orwell gets it in his head to go off and fight for the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War in the nineteen thirties. And you think, yeah, wow, that is, you know, the, the principledness of the youth, the 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 natural tendency of the youth to to be on the left, as we as we always say, uh, as the as well as the old saying goes. Um but there is, seems to be something a little different uh in terms of the, the the authoritarianism of the youth. I don't I don't know what you feel about this this whole area, Ben.
1: I think the polling evidence is is quite clear. So if you look at polling from America or from Britain or from I think any anglosphere country, you can see there is a a divide between the eighteen to twenty nine, say, and older generations uh, with regards to freedom of expression. And generally, um, younger people will prefer safety defined very broadly indeed. Um, as opposed to freedom of speech. So they want people to be safe online, uh, safe from ideas that, that might trouble them, whereas uh, older adults prefer freedom of speech, generally speaking.
0: That's a reality now, Ben, but are you saying that that would have been the reality 50 years ago or 70 years ago?
1: That's the picture now. Yeah. I think what's happened, we, we've spoken before about this great homogenization, and I think what's happened is that there were... Uh, youth subcultures from you know go all the way back to teddy boys or punks or goths or rockers or whatever um and they gave some cohesive identity to teenagers there were lots of different tribes you could sign up to join um now i mean i'm a bit wary of talking about this tom because uh, at Ah. the age of almost 32 the the oldest people i socialize with are in in their very late they're in their very late 20s. So I, I don't know what it is to be a 17-year-old in 2023. And I, I can't pretend that I do. Um, Stick with me, think man. Been... I'll teach you youth culture. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there's been this homogenization they, Those kind of individual um, you know, tribes you can sign up to as a teenager seem to have been replaced by a flat, homogenised online culture. Within that, you can find your little niche you know um you, you can find your discord server about the video game you play or whatever mm. um, but the broader youth culture seems to be very flat very homogenized um as has been explored at great length um by uh, uh you know by, by lots of different scholars now uh, that yeah. there is this sort of culture of safetyism um that i think the academic literature has established quite convincingly yeah. um and that has created authoritarianism yeah. um in, in, to a much greater degree i i, I don't want to over generalize because as we see from the mctaggart program where we're funding uh young people at universities to promote freedom of speech um this isn't the universal impulse among 18 to 20 or 21 year olds yeah. um but quite clearly there has been a cultural change with with respect to free speech over the over the generations um
0: I go back to that book we talked about in an earlier podcast, the coddling of the American mind, which did very much talk about safetyism and, 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 uh, avoiding risk and 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 not understanding what fragility is in a human being that actually exposure to to stress situations is essential for the development of a rounded human being but interestingly and this is where i'm probably going to start to sound like a very old person i one of the things that's frustrated me for a long time probably even when i was still young so we are talking about a very very long time is the attitude of the media to the young and we see it everywhere this this need to appeal to the young and it seems to me that we 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 seek to appeal to the young that's fine but we do it at the cost of of appealing to everybody um in simple terms there used to be television programs the whole family would sit around and watch but now a lot of these organized well we can talk about sort of the bbc or we can talk about itv channel 4, that's just television or even netflix it seems to be very much about well what's going to capture the the, the hearts yeah. and the minds of the youth. And, and to me, again, it's not a healthy environment where everything is set up for you as a young person. It's not great for the older people because they're not being listened to. We're not, we're not being, we feel we're not being listened to as much. Um, but it's also, it's not great for, for younger people either because it's we're going to give you what you want. We're not necessarily going to give you what challenges you. So, and I, I, I remember talking about this even when I was in my teens thinking, well, hang on, why are you asking me what you want? Surely my, my, my grandparents, my parents, they've got an interesting view and, and, a lot more, and a lot more life history. This is where I start to sound like an old codger, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so that's just one element of it, of it Ben. I, I don't know what you feel about some of that.
1: Well, I, I feel I've been set up to be the tribune of youth. <laughs> um, in this conversation I'm, I'm not sure i'm qualified um but thinking out loud um i i think that the generation that was born in the 1960s and in the aftermath of the um 60s social revolution um have more than a little to answer for with respect to this um (laughs) i feel like now (laughs) yes it's a classic classic young person blame the parents um but but i think you know the 1968 moment that that is a clear um and seismic shift between an old world that is now dead and a new world that that many people including youngsters like me find actually very unsettling and unlikable and and undesirable in many ways yeah. um and perhaps in the in the, the the chaos of the collapse of all of those social morals and the decline of religion and, and all of the traditional um, scaffolding uh, which a person would have built their life on um perhaps some retreat to authoritarianism is an inevitable yeah. reaction and you could also yeah. feed into that as well that you know, my generation and the youngsters after me have, have been, you know, basically completely economically screwed. Um, you could talk about growing up in an age post 9-11, where every time you get on the tube or a bus, you think, is a bomb going to blow up? Does that just create a kind of insecurity that that manifests itself as, as yeah. a desire for authoritarianism? I'm thinking out loud, but I, I think all of these yeah. things are, are factors.
0: I think so and and I think one of the one of the things we find every time we talk about free speech is, is the fragmentation of some of the concepts that revolve around free speech there's it's not it seems to me like we're more going through an asteroid field than through a neat solar system where you can see well this is this is the sun and here are the planets it feels like it's a very fragmented kind of area to pick our way through but one area I would pick up you just you just quite rightly mentioned the economic dimension to this I'm, I'm very much a child of thatcher you know the yuppies the the the, the, the phones that look like bricks the uh, the greed is good which uh, was you know what was that film was it wall street i think with michael douglas greed is good oh. um and there was a real feeling you go out there make make a million make a couple of million and uh, that's what it means to, to, to live in the 1980s and the 1990s. And, of course, we then hit uh, – I mean, we know the history. We hit, we hit the crunch in 2008, and we realized that um, there'd been a lot of sort of misunderstanding about how, how, things, how things worked. And now you look at the multiples of house prices over salaries, and people are feeling – the young people are feeling very locked out of key life decisions – of course, which which then is an important economic element to all of this, and they're saying, "Well, I'm going to go and have to live my life in a different way." And how did we get here? And and so, um, you know, how do I tie this back to wokeism and 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 free speech? Well, I think I think what this shows is is that um, if you're not given a purpose, or you're not, you don't feel that you you can really forge a path for yourself. In 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 your parents' footsteps or in your grandparents' footsteps, then you you're, you're at risk of being captured, um, and and that's perhaps some of what's happened as
1: well. I think. I think it, it also all, all of these things are extending childhood and deferring adulthood. That's what yeah. that's the other thing that, that you know that, that's the net result of all of these of all of these trends, um, and if there's a generation or now in in fact two generations, I would say quite clearly. Um, who can't have a stake in society economically, you can't buy into it. Um, you know They've got very, very little impulse and to want to conserve any of it. Um, and all of that does have consequences for f- freedom of speech as well, because that, that's part of the um, liberal democratic model that has basically not been handing over the good. it's not been working um, since at least 2008. So um, I, I think that that's part of the mood music that shouldn't be yes. shouldn't be ignored. Um, and I don't want to be too downbeat about this. I mean, it, you know, the economic stuff can be fixed. It's going to be a hell of a project for somebody, not for me. Mm-hmm. But um, if that if that could possibly be 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 righted over the course of the next generation, um, and if there are enough holdouts in universities um, and in workplaces like Anna Thomas, who are still standing up for the classical liberal values and freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and so on um i, I think those embers can be kept alive and and um yeah. and it can be but and we, we can navigate through the ought cloud of censorship or whatever it was you called it a minute ago tom um, i called it an asteroid so I, I, field i think <laughs> an asteroid field, yeah yeah so um I, I think there is some hope and it's, it is quite heartening actually looking at this um I said about the McTaggart programme that we're using to fund university uh, initiatives and uh, initiatives for young people and student societies and so on to promote freedom of speech. Seeing the strength of those applications coming in over the last couple of months has been really heartening. So you can look at the polling and the polling looks a bit grim, um, but people change their minds. It's possible to get people to change their minds and to persuade them. I mean, look at the change in attitudes to gay rights over the last 15, 20 years. So it, it is possible to affect revolutionary or indeed counter-revolutionary social change. Um, so hang on in there. That would be my my advice. Uh, I think
0: that, I think I agree completely with what you said. In fact, you, you, what you just said is echoes with what I'm about to say, which is, I think is offering an alternative. You know, if people do feel locked out, you know, financially or culturally, then it's all about offering an alternative. And what I think is attractive about a lot of what we're doing with the help of the McTaggart Fund and other and other things, is that if you're part of the free speech campaign, you're now a rebel. Isn't that great? Yeah. You know, you're in the minority. Yeah. Fabulous. That always feels, like, a bit edgy. You're, um, you're fighting for something. You're fighting on quite, you know, well-founded enlightenment principles. And there's a sense in which in, there's the winning of it, while it doesn't feel inevitable at the moment, If our civilization is going to exist, then it has to be inevitable (laughs) because really Western thought and and the progress. I mean, one one thing that struck me, Ben, is that out of wokeism, what great art has come? What great literature, what great thinking has come out of wokeism? And the reality is, it doesn't matter which generation you are, you want great thinking you want great art you want great literature and at some people people are just going to be so thirsty for it that they're gonna they're gonna rediscover it and and again that that is going to be that's why it's quite an exciting alternative in my mind to be on the side of free speech this is
1: a bit broader than freedom of speech but but two examples i would i would give of that of that thirst for uh for knowledge and for what for what was before um there's a twitter account called cultural tutor that was set up just over a year ago may 2022 um and it's uh it's a twitter feed and a substack i think a weekly substack um post uh, exposing readers to a very very broad sweep of the traditional western canon from um antiquity to uh, to the renaissance basically um and it has 1.4 million twitter followers mm. so <laughs> and that's yeah. so that there is clearly a demand for for this so that's the first example and secondly i think it's possible to for my generation to go back and and find the knowledge that that was denied to us at schooling so i'm a product of the new labor education system and left knowing uh, left school knowing nothing about ancient history or classics or classical world at all and it's possible to pick up and discover those things for yourself and i think people increasingly uh, are wanting to do that and are able to do that well i i
0: i completely agree i was reading over the weekend about a debate as to whether newton was, was was uh was the greater intellect than einstein and uh you know at first blush you'd look at that and you'd say well you look at special relativity you look at general relativity you look at space-time e equals mc squared all of that stuff you think well einstein's Einstein's got the edge, but I was ultimately persuaded otherwise for very specific reasons. So Newton kind of started with nothing. He started out, he came up with the Newtonian physics and he did say, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. But in essence, he was being a bit generous there. He was, he was pretty special. He he kind of founded integral calculus just to solve the side problem. Um... And so you realize, where was Newton? He was in the wilderness, and he started to build a, a, yeah. a machinery, scientific machinery in his Principia Mathematica, that simply didn't exist before him, and then was the basis of everything else that came after him. And, and so, yeah, w- w- why am I saying that? It's, I'm saying that because that was, number one, astonishing. But number two, we may feel like we're in, we're in the desert, um, but it's an exciting time. For a new Newton to come along and and tell us about our cultural times we're living through so that so that we're not living in a desert anymore and we're rediscovering um you know the great things that that, that are out there to move our culture on and and to create new statues of David and new, new Shakespeare's and new things like that we're not at the end of history culturally we can't be it it just doesn't happen
1: no and i I think there is a profound rejection of um Woke and woke aesthetics, and mm. it's it's very meagre cultural offerings, and, and its stifling approach to creativity. And I think that increasingly, if people can can just be a little bit more like Anna Thomas and just push back, yeah, politely and reasonably in the part of the world that that they're in and responsible for, um, this juggernaut can be stopped.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And be curious. Be curious. That's that's yeah. the that's the other thing about how to how, if we if, if we if we've had to suffer the education you had Ben, it's your curiosity <laughs> it's the, your curiosity in things that has, has built you up into who you are today, uh, for good or ill. <laughs> for good or ill, listeners can decide. <laughs> listeners. That was a really interesting conversation, um and and I do love our, our deep dives into sort of some of the ideas and, and themes around woke, but. Another piece of news that we should, should mention is uh, something that's hit in the newspapers over the weekend, and I'm sure almost all of our listeners must have caught this, um, which is that uh, documents have been revealed under Freedom of Information and Data Protection Requests uh, showing that the activities, just as, so this is going back to the COVID lockdowns and the COVID pandemic reality, but the activities of prominent critics of the government's COVID policies were secretly monitored. Um, and the issue here, Ben is it's not, and we, we won't get into the tangled web of what we think about all the different elements of the COVID-19 reality. The point here is that dissent was being squashed. So if people were saying, and they could have been completely wrong, but they were saying the opposite to what the government was saying, I don't know about masks or something, um, they were being squashed, or and what was happening is that this unit was working with social media companies to push to the periphery, or even to push off platforms views that were were, were not um, were not the uh, the accepted view of the government. And it's really quite scary when you when when you look at this because it seems feels like a wartime kind of tactic. Uh, or, or even a tactic that we would do in order to to battle information misinformation with Russia or or with a with a hostile foreign state, uh, and what we're what we're finding is the governments kind of turn that in on to us the domestic population. Um, so that's the that's the terror really of of what's been discovered through these revelations over the weekend. I don't know. I don't know what you feel about it, Ben.
1: Well. There's been this drip, drip of, of revelations about this sort of activity that that went on during the pandemic. What concerns me most of all, setting aside the particulars of this report in The Telegraph, that in the information environment that we all live in every day, that a malign government in Britain in the future or um, in any other Western democracy, for that matter, um, would have an unprecedented, unparalleled ability to, um, shape, restrict, stifle national debate, um, in a way that the, the, the analog 20th century dictatorships of the 20th century could only have dreamt of. Um, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure my brain isn't big enough to answer the question of, of how we avoid that, that danger. Um, yeah. But I, I think that th- th- these revelations seemed likely to keep coming, and I think the trouble with um, with these sorts of emergency, um, quasi wartime measures that, that that governments use, they're very tempting, and they become addicted to them. Yeah. You know, and that's that's not um, that's not a comment on the character of particular ministers or prime ministers. It's it's just the nature of the beast that that governments don't really get smaller; they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And the state is expected to do more and more and more and more. Um, And temporary measures like, for instance, changing the the clocks, which was something brought in in the First World War and explicitly passed uh, with the proviso that it would be temporary and that that practice would end as soon as the war stopped. Um, obviously, we're still doing that or income tax. To defeat I knew you'd Napoleon. mention income tax. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm still waiting for that to be banned.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, although I think I'm right. I think it, I, I have to check. but I think it was scrapped and then but then brought back again. You're right. But whatever, yeah. e- either way, it demonstrates the point I'm making that once governments get these powers, they don't relinquish them. Yeah. Um, and once governments know they can do these things, you know it's very, it's very tempting. If, if you if you you know think of the perspective of, of being a government minister and you have this this immensely powerful tool at your disposal, surely the temptation is you. Yes, you can use it to to, to address something you think is deeply harmful. But then, as you get further down your to do list and you see things that are slightly harmful or things that aren't ideal or things that you tweak or fix or alter, the temptation to use this tool. Uh, this ring of power is just going to grow, and that—that's what's—that's what's worrying about it. The, the, you know, the the particulars about this case are, are really troubling as well. So I don't want to diminish that, um, but the long term implications I think are more important.
0: No, I I, I agree with that. I think um, I think as you say, once they've got this power, once they've tasted this power, it shows the importance of an opposition. Uh, and again not wanting to get political because we're not but if it would have been if it had been a Labour government we needed an opposition on the Tory benches if it it was a Conservative government we needed an opposition on the Labour government most opposition actually came from the Tory benches Um, again you know we can talk about the timing of it maybe early on in the pandemic it made sense for everyone to say look this is a real health emergency so we've all got to agree on something and there is merit in that but you need an op- opposing voice and you need to allow that opposing voice to speak. And that—that that is what's so scary about this. And and I think what, I, what the sort of glimmers of hope in all of this are that organisations have been set up to, to look into and things have been written down to look into what happened at the time that emergency legislation was brought in at the beginning of the COVID-19 reality and to take a more dispassionate view and say this went wrong um, and this is what we need to do differently. But I do worry about the template that's been that's been established, and also I I slightly worry that these glimmers of hope remain niche, and they remain relatively small, and are not yet hitting the mainstream. Maybe maybe that's a question of time for the mainstream to pick up and say, you know what, we did need more voices dissenting. We do need to yeah. rediscover what dissent is, and realise that there's a distinction between harmful disinformation which we all get and dissent and that that's a reasonable um a very reasonable distinction and and we've got to be quite crystal clear on it so ultimately maybe some good will come out of all of this that we'll think uh, we'll think back to first principles again as to what uh, again
1: good free speech means in our society i think if you if you're doing something as profound as shutting down all economic and social life through a lockdown at the bare minimum, you need a red team and a blue team. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. You really do.
0: Well, there's a great article uh, in spiked this that by Tom Slater about uh, this sort of disinformation being redefined. You know, it used to be false information which is intended to mislead, and now it's come to mean inconvenient facts or a differing opinion, or even a euphemism for demonizing and silencing dissent. So well worth may not, you may not agree with what he says and maybe he makes his point too strongly. Um, but I think there's much to think about, uh, in what he brings up there. And there's much to think about in what's come out over the weekend with the telegraph. And hopefully we can have cooler heads now, now that we're through the other end, cooler heads and really think about the, the free speech ramifications. Um, and, and what, breaks and checks and balances we can put into the to our system um, to make it better
1: next time before we go we want to talk about some of the resources that the free speech union has to assist people uh, in cases like anatomics or whatever type of workplace you're in Um, we have a case team that uh, that i'm on that's very busy helping people we have a legal team likewise Um, but we also have a lot of people who contact us uh, looking for uh, in, informal advice or suggestions or just to get a, a second opinion about a situation they're in. Um, and for that purpose, we have a huge amount of, uh, huge number of resources on our website, including information about how to make a freedom of information request or a subject access request um, and guides navigating some of these, uh, the, these social justice codes that have been enforced in workplaces. So what to do if you're asked to declare your pronouns or how to get a non-crime hate incident removed from your police record Um, so we have a huge number of resources that we are building up um, as we as we gain more and more information we build up our picture of what's going on across society in the free speech war so there's a huge amount um, to look at on our website uh, that I think is of great use to people I know has been really helpful to people navigating some of these problems who, who are very stressed about the situation they're in
0: and it's always nice Ben being able when someone we get a lot of people write in to help at freespeechunion.org, and they say i've been asked to put my pronouns at the bottom of my signature or i'm on yeah. i'm going on to unconscious bias training or um you know i've got i've got i've got an nca a non crime hate instant i just think i've got a non crime hate instant and we can point people straight off the bat to these, to these documents. And what I like about them is they, they, they bring out the nuance. So unsurprisingly, things aren't always quite as black and white and it always depends on yep. the context. Um, but the, the, the briefings, the FAQs, the frequently asked questions bring out the nuance quite well. And there's also a really good classroom resource that came from a teacher in 2020 on teaching how to teach racism and inequality in sixth. I think it's the sixth form context, uh, and I read through that, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Again, doing a sort of lining up critical race theory with a more traditional um, uh, view of sort of Martin Luther King uh, fighting for rights back in back in the sixties in the US, and I think that lining it up. And Giving the pros of one side and giving the cons of the other. That's the way you teach. That's the way you think. And yet that's exactly the sort of thing, of course, that got Anna Thomas just by saying there's another side to this. Um, It's called thinking. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I think it's a really – when you actually go onto our website and look at what's been built up over the years. And I would also say that um, we're always open for ideas of other themes where we could build a briefing pack or build an faq we think for now we think we've got most of them but we're always talking internally aren't we ben about other faqs or briefings that could be useful to people
1: um so we're always happy to hear about those very much so um, and also if you need assistance that goes beyond what the faqs on our website can can do for you uh, do drop us a line and our case and legal teams would be very happy to help
0: I think that's all we've got for today. So thank you to everyone uh, for listening
1: again. And Ben, did you have anything to add for today? No, thanks very much for listening. Um, And uh, remember, you can join the Free Speech Union and prices start at £2.49 a month if you're not already a member. Um, And we will speak to you next time. Goodbye.